Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. This is an extraordinary moment in our history. Mother Nature has now joined this conversation around climate change. That was Governor Gavin Newsom in his video to the DNC last week, underscoring the links between climate and wildfires. And coming up on Forum, we'll talk with UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain about global warming, wildfires, and what California can expect in the future. And then, what's the best way to help those affected by the fires? We'll get tips about how and where to donate. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Record-breaking heat. Dry vegetation and lightning each played a role in sparking wildfires that have burnt more than one million acres across California. But to what extent were these factors caused by climate change? UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain, along with a team of researchers, published a study earlier this year that found that the number of days with extreme fire weather during the autumn season has more than doubled since the late 1970s. Cal Fire calls climate change a key driver of the shift toward longer fire seasons. And in this segment, I want to talk with Daniel Swain about the link between climate change and the risk of wildfires in California. And welcome, Daniel Swain. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And Daniel Swain, I should mention, is a, not only a climate scientist with the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA, also a research fellow with the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Just, you know, it, it's very hard to get uh, the head around all the toll that this has taken. Uh, we're talking about over a million acres burned, and that's the size of Delaware or Rhode Island, five times the size of New York. I'm just at this point wondering if we can explain not only uh, this in terms of the greater heat, in terms of uh, the fact that we have longer fire seasons and more destructive fire, all in the context of climate change. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of moving parts here. And I think one of the, one of the most extraordinary aspects of the, of the present situation is that, as you say, over a million acres have burned. Um, it's not the total acreage uh, in a general sense that's so astonishing, but it's the fact that that managed to occur in, in about a two-week period just in Northern California. So that's a relatively small region in a very short period of time over which to see uh, that kind of wildfire extent, even in a part of the world that is very accustomed to fire, and even in a part of the world that has experienced quite severe wildfire activity over the past five or six years. Uh, this is still kind of a, a shocking, um, shockingly sudden um, escalation in the wildfire situation this summer. And forgive me, Daniel, even though there were no sh- uh, really strong offshore winds this time. 
Yeah, I mean, that's 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 what's so surprising about how quickly the situation escalated. It, it, you know, often California sees its largest and fastest moving wildfires, especially in the coastal areas, uh, in the autumn during offshore wind conditions. Those would be the Diablo winds in the Bay Area or the Santa Ana winds in Southern California. In this case, th there were no such offshore winds to speak of at all. Um, this really was the product, at least in the in the immediate past, uh, of this extraordinary long, dura long duration and record-breaking heat wave combined with um, some unfortunate antecedent conditions, uh, uh, an extremely dry winter in Northern California, um, a long-term warming trend, and then we followed all of that up with a very unfortunate dry lightning outbreak uh, that brought over 11,000 lightning strikes to a portion of Northern California. So that, that confluence of events, um, unfortunately, uh, led us to where we are today. And your research has pretty borne out the notion that we have doubled the number of extreme risk days that we have, and the number of days of extreme weather during the autumn season has more than doubled, as we've said, uh, since, the, since the late 70s, but also since the early 70s. Uh, I was reading in an article called Earth's Future, uh, in a journal called Earth's Future, uh, wildfire has increased eightfold, uh, and the annual burned area uh, has grown by 50%. How much of this is, again, attributable to climate change, as you see it, particularly when you think about all of the dry how dry the vegetation becomes? Yeah, that's right. My co-authors and I uh, published um, a study recently focused on autumn uh, fire risk in California and did indeed find that the number of extreme fire weather days has already doubled due to climate change and is continuing to increase as warming continues uh, to, to persist. And uh, the other study you mentioned, um, some of the same, some of my same colleagues actually were involved with that one. Uh, that focused a little more on the summer season and the whole year in California and came to conclusions that were, were, were very analogous uh, to what you described, essentially that there has been a very large and very steep increase in the number of wildfire acres burned in California over the past several decades. And that one of the key reasons for that is indeed the way that the climate has changed, not just the warming itself, although that has increased fire risk by increasing vegetation aridity, uh, what's known as fuel moisture uh, over time, meaning that the vegetation becomes more flammable and not just that it becomes possible to burn uh, new areas or something like that. You know, we, we, we already live in a, in a fire adapted landscape in many places where fire was historically a part of the landscape for thousands of years. But the difference is that increasingly dry vegetation burns more intensely creates more intense fires, larger fires, fires that spread more quickly and are harder to fight. And what's so striking is that this year, um, we had sort of this, this classic sequence of events that you might expect to lead to a bad fire season, which started out with the dry winter in Northern California, and then a particularly warm spring. If you recall, we had those early season spring heat waves right along the coast, which were a little bit unusual, no June gloom this year. Um, but, you know, later in the summer, July wasn't too bad. Um, July was actually a pretty typical July for California, which is to say relatively mild, dry, um, no big uh, thunderstorm events or anything like that. But then we came to August and uh, things changed very quickly. We had a very prolonged record heat wave, that big lightning event. And then we also, on top of that, have the legacy of climate change with this vegetation drying in the long term. 
We're talking with Daniel Swain, climate scientist with the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and research fellow with the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather about uh, extremes at the National, excuse me, weather extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And we're talking about the link between wildfires and climate change. So let me see, Daniel, if I can sort of put this into an equation of sorts. Uh, you got hotter temperatures, you got less dependable precipitation, and you got snowpack melting faster. So the result of all that, drier soil, parched vegetation, uh, vegetation, and as a result, climate change affecting the amount of moisture, as you said before, that's in the air, dries out the air, affects plant moisture, and what we have is California as a tinderbox, plain spoken. Uh, that's, that's basically it. You know, one of the interesting things, since we have the time, I'll, I'll get a little bit more into the science here. Um, the, the key connection between climate change and wildfire risk, not just in California, but more generally, is through vegetation moisture. It's not so much that we're increasing the strength of those offshore winds in the fall or that we're increasing the frequency of lightning events that can spark fires. That's not necessarily what we're saying. Really, it's actually a fairly straightforward connection, which is that as, as the atmosphere warms, what's known as the vapor pressure deficit increases with that warming. And what the vapor pressure deficit is, in simple terms, is really just the gap between how much moisture could be in the atmosphere and how much moisture is actually in the atmosphere. So as that gap widens with global warming, the propensity for extreme fire behavior increases. There's actually a lot of really compelling evidence that this gap in atmospheric moisture between what could be there and what's actually there is a strong driver of wildfire activity because of how it affects living vegetation. So the plants are responding to this increase in this atmospheric water deficit, if you will. And so they are actually becoming drier directly as a result of this. And so all the other factors that normally play into fire risk in California are still relevant. Obviously, we still worry about strong winds, especially those strong offshore winds in autumn. We worry about dry winters, we worry about dry autumns because it extends our fire season. But on top of all of this, what really seems to matter is that when you do get extreme fire weather conditions by some other means, whether it's the dry lightning outbreak or a strong wind outbreak or a big heat wave, this antecedent drying of vegetation sort of sets the stage for those fires to become even more extreme than they would have been otherwise under, under the circumstances. Yeah, these were indeed dry lightning fires. The majority of fires are from human sources igniting, aren't they? Yeah, in California, it's actually, um, this, this was a somewhat unusual wildfire outbreak in that they were almost all naturally sparked fires by lightning. Uh, in, in California, most fires are sparked by humans. And sometimes that's misinterpreted to mean that there's a lot of arson or people intentionally lighting fires. Really what that means is there's a variety of ways that it becomes possible to uh, accidentally spark fires. Uh, uh, power line fires, which we've seen a lot of with all of the controversy over PG&E in recent years, for example, those are human sparked fires. The ranch fire, uh, which became uh, the largest fire in state history a couple of years back, was sparked by someone hammering a metal stake into the ground. So there's a lot of ways that really the point is that there, there's a lot of ways to generate a spark uh, that could start a wildfire, whether it's lightning or, or someone getting a flat tire on their car or carelessness, someone throwing a cigarette butt out a window. There's plenty of sparks out there. The question really in our minds as, as climate scientists and fire scientists is, 
given a spark, what happens next? Does climate change influence how these wildfires evolve after they ignite? Uh, do they change the character of wildfires, essentially? And the answer appears to be yes, and we're unfortunately uh, seeing that borne out in the real world over the past few years. A lot of your science has to do with the rising temperatures. I mean, we had a 130 degree temperature in Death Valley, uh, unprecedented. And uh, just wondering what your response is to uh, uh, John Keeley. I'm sure you're familiar with his work, uh, USGS uh, senior scientist who said that essentially your research has failed to show that rising temperatures are driving the wildfires. They need to be more uh, concerned with ignition sources than with temperature. And we really need to look at this more from the standpoint of uh, controlling the fires more than putting out fires. That is uh, essentially, I think, trying to at least give a synopsis to what Keely has said. Yeah, it's a little hard to address uh, what another scientist is saying about our work without talking to them directly. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I would actually pretty strongly disagree with this characterization of sort of what we've actually demonstrated in our scientific work. But I think that there's a couple of, of, of kernels of truth in there that maybe I'll focus on, um, which is that one, um, the, the notion that all fire is bad, I think is very problematic. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, I think me. it's, let me a, ask it's you to hold that thought for a moment because we're going to a break. And of course, I want to find out what your thoughts are about, uh, the best ways to diminish the kind of effects of climate change and global warming, uh, aside from fossil fuel diminution. Uh, I want to bring our listeners into this as well. And if you have questions for Daniel Swain, or if you have something you'd like to comment about, or if you simply would like to join this conversation, I want to invite you to do that now. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. You can join us right now at that number, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or join us by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. Our guest is Daniel Swain. We're talking about the link between wildfires and climate change on Forum at KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Well, we had a quick break there, but we're back with Daniel Swain talking about the link between wildfires and climate change. And Daniel Swain, again, is a climate scientist at the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. And before we went to the break, uh, you, were you were sort of fleshing out uh, some thoughts uh, with respect to what I brought up about uh, John Keeley's remarks in response to your research. And I'd like you to go further with that, if you would. Sure. Yeah. Again, it's it's very difficult to directly address uh, scientific criticisms when I, I haven't actually heard specifically what they are in person. But I think, you know, there's there's this notion that that there's you know one singular cause for why California has entered this wildfire crisis. I think something that everybody would agree on is that the current situation is a crisis, and it's not because all fire is inherently bad. And I think that there is this notion that sometimes when a climate scientist or a fire scientist says that climate change is making wildfires worse that they're saying that climate change is the only thing that matters and it is the only reason why California wildfires um, have gotten worse and larger and more severe. And that, of course, is not the case. And that's not the argument that we're making. We're arguing actually that it's one of several important factors. Um, and some of those other factors that are important, or I think what John may have been referring to, one of which is this legacy of the 20th century 
uh, total fire suppression policies throughout the American West. And the reason why that's important is that it means that in a lot of ecosystems in California, this is not relevant everywhere, but it's especially relevant in the, in the forests in California and elsewhere. There is essentially a, a, a dearth of natural uh, good fire in these forest ecosystems, low to medium intensity fires that would have uh, historically uh, pre-colonial era um, would have come along historically and essentially burned away a lot of the underbrush and the smaller trees, leaving the mature trees and essentially producing a healthier forest overall. And a healthier forest in general has a lower, uh, what's known as the fuel load. So you don't have as much dense vegetation to burn as you do when you remove fire artificially from the landscape over the course of essentially a century and allow the, those fuels to accumulate. That is indeed part of the problem in California and throughout the West, and part of the reason why things have gotten as bad as they have. And a third factor, in addition to climate change and the legacy of 20th century uh, vegetation management and forest suppression policies, is especially relevant when we talk about damages from fires, the number of homes burned and the number of lives unfortunately lost, which is that Today, you know, there are a lot more people just living in what's known as the wildland urban interface, this zone where there is increased flammability, but where people also live sometimes intermingled with that flammable vegetation. There has been a huge surge in the number of people in California who live in these zones over the past few decades. And that too accounts for why we're seeing so much more damage from these, from these fires. But I guess I just want to reemphasize that both of those things can be true, and it can also still be the case that climate change is acting on top of them to make the whole situation worse. And that's essentially the argument that we make in our work when we isolate the specific effect of climate change and say, well, if nothing else were changing, the situation would still be getting worse due to global warming. But the real big problem is that these other things are also acting in concert to make the situation even worse in an additive sense. So they're all unfortunately acting in the same direction to amplify the problem. Yeah, and you've outlined those things very well, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, the wild, wild urban interface and uh, the drier vegetation obviously are paramount here, but climate change is, uh, according to your research and certainly according to the way many of us see it, uh, a major factor that has to be in some ways addressed. And when we have higher temperatures, when we have longer fire seasons, and climate change are drivers of both of those, unusual amount of humidity as well and all of this parched atmosphere um what's to be done i mean the the clear sense of the mission here in this crisis that we're facing is that we have to in some ways uh reduce the burning of fossil fuels but i wonder what else you can say in the way of mitigating yeah you know there's actually some interesting um kernels of a solution sort of in in the problem itself actually one of those things that that i mentioned just a moment ago was that there is essentially a, a lack of of natural fire on the landscape so there's less fire than there probably should be in a lot of california's open lands um, for optimal ecosystem health and in a lot of cases that means that there's less low to medium intensity fire than there should be if we want to avoid the really high intensity fires that are that actually are the ones that become a problem. And so there's been a lot of discussion uh, about how uh, returning a lot of this, the, 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 the land in California to something that more closely resembles its natural fire ecology is going to be an important way of doing this. So in other words, 
engaging in managed fire or prescribed fire on a much larger scale than we have historically. Um, it's something that we've started to do more and more over the past couple of decades, uh, but not nearly to the extent that we would need to, to really meaningfully address the problem. And I think that there's a lot of folks who have rightly pointed out that the indigenous peoples of California um, hundreds and thousands of years ago actually engaged in exactly that kind of practice where there, there was active management of the landscape uh, using fire as a tool both to improve ecosystem health and achieve certain, certain benefits. And I think that's actually something that's being very seriously looked at right now throughout the state. Um, as both a risk mitigation strategy and actually as something that could benefit the environment if it's done right. So using, using good fire to an increased extent, I think, is probably one of the more promising avenues um, moving forward. Talking to climate scientist Daniel Swain, I want to bring our callers on here. And again, you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Let me bring Eric on. Uh, Eric, join us. Uh, Eric, you've evacuated from Guerneville, is that right? Uh, yeah, I came down. To, I'm in San Francisco right now. Uh, I arrived here oh, early hours last Wednesday uh, when we got the initial uh, mandatory evacuation order. Uh, but the, the question I have is uh, regarding... Um, Reporting and what I hear and see in the media and <clears throat> what I'm seeing on the uh, NWCG map, which is the National Wildfire Coordinating Group map of uh, wildfires throughout the country. Uh, what I hear on the uh, uh, media and read is like, for instance, the one million plus acres that have gone up in these firestorms. It's just those figures, but then I look on the map and see this massive fire in the Mendocino forest, uh, which Cal Fire is not responsible for. My question is, we're, we seem to only be getting the numbers for fires under Cal Fire's auspices, but there seem to be other fires, such as in the National Forest, uh, that we're not getting the numbers on, which means even higher number of acres uh, under flame right now. I'm wondering if your guests can clarify. Eric, thank you for the question. Can you clarify, Daniel Swain? Yeah, there's an interesting point there. This is actually something that I ran into in trying to figure out exactly what was going on over the past week, is that there has been um, kind of a, a faulty information flow. It's been a little bit difficult to ascertain exactly what the scope and extent of things are, particularly as it, as it relates to specific fires. Um, I think this is because a confluence of, you know, again, really unfortunate events, um, you know, among other things, we're in the middle of a pandemic when a lot of the folks who are working on the data management for these sorts of things are working from home and don't have access to the normal tools that they would. It's also the case that this has happened so suddenly and it is, is such a large geographic extent that I think that it's, we've been sort of playing catch up. So I think um, Cal Fire, you know, it, it probably doesn't have the the, the public uh, information on their websites, uh, maybe as at, at the top of the priority list, given everything else that needs to be done, which is maybe a little bit frustrating. I think it's pretty clear that we're well over a million acres just in the past two weeks. Um, I don't know if we're at a million and a half yet, but but it, by some accounts, we're, we're getting pretty close. Latest report, very, very, I think, was 1.4, the latest report I saw. I, 
That sounds very reasonable. Yeah, I, I, I have no reason to, to doubt that. And it is important to realize that even though some of the largest fires are actually in pretty close proximity to the Bay Area right now, talking about the LNU complex, the SCU complex, and the CZU complex, there are also other very large and complex fires elsewhere in the state right now, particularly uh, in the north. Um, parts of in areas near Susanville have been evacuated as well. As you mentioned, there's a very large complex of fires and the Mendocino National Forest that has essentially gone unmentioned in, in the media is producing a huge amount of smoke that's actually uh, smoking out places as far downwind as Colorado or even the Great Plains. So there's just, there's so much fire right now. It's, it is hard. To, it's, in, it's getting hard to keep track of all of them, honestly. And let me thank Eric for the call. It's also not only hard to keep track of, but one of the more disturbing things is that and you mentioned specific fires, LNU fire, which is up in Napa and Sonoma, is the second largest recorded. And the SCU fire, which is covering in Santa Clara and Alameda, uh, is the third biggest fire. Again, the extent of these fires uh, and the number of fires that we've seen has just grown. You've got 13 of uh, 20 largest fires occurring during the summer. You had said earlier that you know it used to be autumn uh, where things uh, would get worse and so forth. But now um, one is feeling this... Uh, real sense of apocalyptic feeling all but one in the last uh, five decades uh, have been during this uh, the, the largest summer season that we've seen. Yeah, as you mentioned, currently the two of the fires burning in the Bay Area are, are the, two, the second and third largest fires in state history, history, respectively, at least in modern state history, going back about 100 years or so. And what's amazing is that if we had done, if we had ranked these fires uh, just five years ago, both of them would have been the largest fire in state history. It's just that in the last three years, we've broken the record for largest fire in modern state history twice. So, it, you know, we're, we're breaking pretty much all the records there are to break in terms of modern fire history in California. And this era, certainly in the era of modern fire suppression, which goes back about a century um, and, you know, the only thing I can say that's that's silver lining, at least with this particular fire outbreak, is we don't have the, the, the levels of loss of life or loss of homes that we did in the last couple of years. Of course, that's a very low bar because those were really horrific years. And as you say, we still have the autumn to get through, which is the time of year when you would more typically expect to see the kinds of fast moving fires that really do threaten lives um, and property to a high degree. Isn't also the northern part of the world warming faster than the planet as a whole, drying out the forests to a greater degree? Well, that's certainly true uh, up in the Arctic. So when we talk about that, that Arctic amplification effect, usually we're talking about uh, areas considerably further poleward than, than California. Um, but interestingly, we've had a really severe fire year in the Arctic this year as well, especially the Siberian Arctic. Uh, which was set some astonishing warm temperature records this year. And when I say warm temperature records, often in the Arctic, we're talking about warmer than average, but still cold. But this particular summer in the Siberian Arctic was genuinely hot, 90, 95 degrees on a number of days at the very high latitudes where there have been huge forest fires and even fires burning into the, 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 the tundra um, and the peatlands, the, that, that partially frozen swamplands in the far north of the Arctic. So that poleward warming isn't directly what we're talking about in the California context, but it is relevant more globally um, when we talk about the overall wildfire picture as it comes to climate change. I want to bring Daniel on next who wants to talk about water supply. Daniel, join us, please. Good morning. 
Good morning. Yeah, uh, Daniel, I have a question um, about water. So uh, as climate change gets worse here in California, you know, we uh, will have more droughts and the Sierra snowpack will keep diminishing. So I was wondering uh, what what kind of a dent will uh, fighting future fires as, you know, they get more uh, likely to happen in the future. How much of a dent will that put in our uh, water in California? Can you estimate or speculate anything along those lines, Daniel Swain? Yeah, well, one of the things we know about climate change in general in California is that it's it's you kind of have to look at the at the details to really understand how California's water situation is likely to change. Um, and that's because you know we haven't seen much of a trend in overall average precipitation um, due to global warming so far in California, and we actually don't expect to see a very strong trend in average precipitation. But the challenge is that that kind of masks all of the really big changes that will be happening with California water, the first and foremost of which comes once again directly from the warming and the increase in evaporation that's occurring really the whole year round um, and the decrease in snowpack. So first of all, we have um, in many parts of California a water supply that's quite dependent on Sierra Nevada uh, snowpack accumulation and then subsequent snow melt during the warm season in the summer and autumn. A lot of our big western slope Sierra Nevada reservoirs are essentially built with, with that gradual summer snowmelt in mind. As we start to lose that snowpack, even in winter, um, or we lose it earlier in the year, those sorts of large reservoirs become less effective at delivering water during the warm season when we need it. On top of that, there's more evaporation occurring in a warmer atmosphere just about everywhere. So given the same amount of rain, there's less water available to plants. That's one of the reasons why wildfire risk is increasing, as, as we discussed earlier. There's also this notion that even though the overall average precipitation might not change very much, we might see wider swings back and forth between extreme wet and extreme dry conditions. And what that might mean is that the water becomes even more difficult to capture in our reservoirs, even more difficult uh, to capture in the soil where plants might be able to use it. So that's sort of where the climate is affecting the water supply, where we may see somewhat paradoxically an increase in the risk of flood, but also in the increase in the risk of drought and aridity the rest of the time. Now, the fires themselves can also affect water supply in a few ways. One, if you, if you burn a lot of a particular watershed upstream of major water storage area, for example, that's really going to affect water quality in that watershed. So this is why San Francisco, for example, is particularly concerned about watershed quality uh, up at Hetch Hetchy and down by Crystal Springs. And while none of these fires have immediately affected those, res those watersheds right now, it's sort of something that, that, that is high on the mind of a lot of folks, the potential risk that that poses to watershed level water quality and, and how we, what we would do in the event that there is a major wildfire that, that, that severely degrades the water quality for a major urban area. There's also the problem of uh, post-fire uh, landslides and debris flows. So when you have a high intensity fire that moves through an area, especially an area that has steep slopes, the following winter, and really for a couple of years after that, when you get a big storm, there's a risk uh, that you can get increased flood risk um, when you do get those big storms. We saw that in pretty tragic uh, form down in Montecito in Santa Barbara County a couple of years ago after the Thomas fire with those massive post-fire debris flows. So there are actually a lot of consequences for water supply from the fires directly too. Um, usually um, they're adverse consequences 
but it does depend a bit on exactly where the fires occur relative to where the water supply is, I would say. Our guest is climate scientist Daniel Swain. Let me get another caller on here, and that's you, Ray. Uh, Ray is joining us from San Rafael. Ray, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, it's very refreshing to hear your guest. Uh, I came out to California in the 70s, right after graduate school, was very interested in coming here because I thought so much would be being done here uh, with people like Harold Biswell and Ben Wachtendonk and uh, all the famous fire ecologists and was dismayed to find so little being done. And it seems like there's a disconnect between the fire ecologists and the fire service. Ray, we'll let that comment stand, and I thank you for it. And we'll get to some of your comments that are coming in by email. Daniel Swain, again, our guest climate scientist with the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA and research fellow with the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Talking again about the link between wildfires and climate change. Stay tuned for more. And by the way, we're going to continue this conversation until 9.50. And at that point, we're also going to uh, get some information for you about how to help people in this time of terror, and uh, it's a time of, uh, of great catastrophe, really. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Daniel Swain, a climate scientist, and we're talking again about the link between wildfires and climate change. And if you have something you'd like to add, we'll have Daniel Swain with us for about 10 minutes more. You can join us toll free at 866-733-6786 or email us forum at kqed.org. Let me go to some emails. Uh, Marjorie asks uh, Daniel Swain, what is the best action for mitigation and recovery? Should we aggressively reforest or does that just create more fuel for future dry lightning strikes? And if we don't reforest, doesn't that exacerbate our carbon emissions? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I'm I'm not an ecologist, or I'm I'm, I'm not even a wildfire scientist. I'm a, I'm a climate scientist who 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 works with extreme events, including wildfire. But you know, from from my, from what I understand, from talking with those who are ecologists, is that you know a lot of the ecosystems in California, fire itself is not a problem um, under normal circumstances, and and you know a certain level of fire is is a net positive and is not really. Um, problematic. I think one of the challenges we're seeing, though, is that the background climate conditions today are different than they used to be. And so the post-fire succession process, um, where vegetation regrows and historically a lot of the same species would come back, is not always occurring. And this is, this is something that was started to be noticed about 15 or 20 years ago in the more interior parts of the American Southwest. Um, some of the coniferous forests, say in Arizona and New Mexico, um, uh, used to regenerate um, pretty immediately after fires. Um, they're doing that to a lesser extent now that the climate is warmer and drier in that part of the world. And one of the big questions in California is to what extent are the, the, the essentially the ecosystems that will flourish under whatever climate conditions we have a couple, either now or a couple decades from now, how might they be different from the ones um, that we had historically. So there will be some ecosystems that thrive, something will grow there, um, but it may not be the same thing that grew there uh, previously. And so 
I think the, the reforestation is a, is a tough question. And it's also important to remember that a lot of these places that are burning aren't forests at all. In fact, I think something about 70% of the acreage burned in the past couple of weeks would be non-forest. So that's the grasslands, the chaparral, the oak woodlands, those sorts of things. And those are areas that will probably do a pretty good job of, of, of regrowing themselves for the most part. Here's a question uh, from a listener who actually tweeted wanting to know, could you please address the role of soil moisture and vegetative moisture in high intensity wildfires? And could you suggest ways in which California could rebuild the soil carbon sponge? Another interesting one. So soil moisture is definitely relevant. It's one of the main mechanisms by which um, the climate change is affecting wildfire risk because as I mentioned, how much moisture is in the soil affects how much moisture is available to plants, which in turn affects how intense wildfires can become if they come along and burn those plants. Um, I'm not sure directly how much soil carbon has to do with the soil moisture question. So it's not so much that we've depleted the soil carbon, which is the reason that things, the soil moisture is drier. It's simply that it's warmer and that there's less water uh, that, that is retained by the soil because of that increased evaporation um, due to that warming directly. So I'm not sure if soil carbon, there are other reasons why we care a lot about soil carbon. Uh, I'm not sure that the soil moisture as it relates to wildfire is necessarily one of them. Another listener wants to know whether we could be getting to a place in the North Bay where so much has burned that we won't see fires in those areas for decades. Yeah, that's a really good question because um, some of the areas that have burned in the past two weeks are areas that also burned a couple of years ago. Um, so we're seeing successive reburns of some of these regions. Now, so there's, a, there's, there's some complexity in there, though. Um, some of the places that are burning in successive years or in a couple of successive years apart from each other are places that have pretty fast-growing vegetation. So that's where the grass and the brush has had a couple years to grow back, apparently just enough that it's capable of carrying a flame once again. Um, that's always going to be true in those sorts of vegetation regimes where you have grass or brush. It grows back pretty quickly. And unfortunately, you may not get much of a risk in fire reduction for more than a few years in some cases. Um, it, that's different, I think, in the forests. Usually when you have a significant fire go through and it clears out the underbrush, that will reduce fire risk in those regions for, for quite a while. That's sort of the whole idea behind using prescribed burns as a, as a risk reduction tool. Um, but I think there's this other question, as the climate changes and as the fires increase in scope and intensity, whether or not some of these fires will result in vegetation regime change shifts essentially and different plants growing in the regions where other plants once grew and this is this is something that other that folks who are more deeply in tune with the ecology are taking a look at was what are known as climate fire vegetation feedbacks where after a certain point if you get enough fire on the landscape you may change the landscape enough that it starts to affect the amount of fire that can be sustained on that landscape and depending on where you are it could be a further increase an amplifying effect or a decrease, sort of a mitigating effect. And it really is going to depend on how much warming there is and which kind of ecosystem we're talking about. Well, since you're talking about warming, I mean, the frequency and the intensity of heat waves are increasing because of global warming. That seems to be pretty much incontrovertible. And uh, I'm, I'm just wondering at this point, uh, with more heat waves to come, they're likely to be more intense. What can be done at this point? 
what can we do other than you know prophylactically think of the future and how we can best plan well you know big picture macro thing is that the amount of warming that we're going to see further warming is not preordained we don't know whether we're on the very high warming path or the much more modest warming path yet because we just don't have enough information about the kinds of decisions we're going to make about the energy we use in the world moving forward there's still time to avoid the really high warming outcomes that result in a very large further increase in wildfire risk in california and so i think you know california has been a leader in climate mitigation but i i, I you know the problem is um you know we can be a leader and still be harmed by changes that aren't happening elsewhere with respect to global carbon emissions and how much warming is actually going to occur. So that's sort of the big picture. The more on, a, on the shorter time scale, the more local sense, um, you know, one thing, as I mentioned earlier, is really thinking about how we can use good fire to a greater extent on the landscape to reduce risk and return a lot of these ecosystems to something that more closely resembles their natural fire frequency, I think will be a really positive step. And there is work moving in that direction. But I also think there's some other even more tangible things that we can do in the even shorter term, um, like increasing our capacity for emergency warning systems. I know this was a huge problem in the North Bay fires in 2017 and again uh, in Paradise in 2018. And honestly, we've only really partially solved it based on the stories that I've heard from the past couple of weeks uh, where communications go down. There's a lot of uncertainty about exactly where the fire is and where it's headed even days after it starts. I think that's something that, that may have technological solution and the Bay Area is a great place to solve problems that have technological solutions historically. So I really think that there's a lot that can be done there. And then there's also some um, structural changes, you know, and when I say structural, I literally mean with respect to buildings, um, how we build our homes and businesses when they're in harm's way makes a big difference to how likely they are to actually burn down if a wildfire comes. Um, building materials can be more fire resistant, simple interventions like putting Fire resistant screens on vents on buildings actually has a huge impact because of the, the, the propensity for wildfires to spread, not by direct flame from tree to building, but just by ember storms and these, these showers of embers that blow around and get into the nooks and crannies and start small smoldering fires. So there's some, the interventions range from, you know, extremely simple and low tech to very macro and high tech. Um, and so I think that a lot of folks are going to be thinking pretty seriously about this, or I hope so, given sort of the situation that we seem to find ourselves in um, over the past few years. Daniel Swain, really good to have you with us. Appreciate very much your expertise and the time you spent with us, and I thank you. Thanks again for having me, and stay safe, everyone. Good advice. So Daniel Swain, again, climate scientist with the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. 
I left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.